Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Why Suffering by Pastor Sean Wood. Thank you for your goodness this morning. We are privileged to meet in your house to bless your name. We're just here to bless your name. And so, Lord, right now, through the course of the whole of today, but every day, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, may our hearts be open to hear from you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to meet me to begin with, we're going to jump around a little bit this morning. If you'd like to meet me in the book of Job, uh, chapter 1, and we'll go through the first couple of chapters in a moment, but... uh, Often, the question of why suffering, often it's an elephant in the room that nobody likes to address. Often we, we, we kind of ignore this elephant and we have many different reasons. We, we try to sometimes describe or, or pass it off as some, many different things. But the fact of the matter is this. Uh, And this is why I appreciate the book of Ecclesiastes a great deal for those that were here when we worked our way through that book. Um, Romans chapter 8, for those that managed to stay awake through the series in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the whole creation has been subject to futility. Uh, Just put up your hand this morning if you're a part of creation. Well, that word futility, um, and it kind of includes you, that word fertility... the writer to Ecclesiastes, or the writer of Ecclesiastes, is Solomon, and he uses a similar word called vanity. And he says, you know what? Life is full of vanity. And here's a guy that had all of the resources. If he was alive today, he'd be the richest man alive. Donald Trump? No, not even close. But um, Bill Gates? Not even close. But he had all of the means and all of the resources, and he said, you know what? I'm going to address this elephant. He, he looked at everything. He, he decided he was going to build himself beautiful gardens. He had, he had all these wives. Why would you want more than one, right? But he, he, had all the, he, he amassed great wealth. And he says things in the book of Ecclesiastes like this. Um, satisfaction is sold separately. He noticed a few things. He said, you know what? In the course of my life, and unpacking the elephant, he said, you know what? The race doesn't always go to the swift. Ask Stephen Bradbury. You've got to be in the race to win it though, right? <laughs> the race doesn't always go to the swift and the battle doesn't always go to the strong. You know what? Sometimes bad things happen to good people. You ever notice that? You ever notice that sometimes bad things happen to Christians? We're going to talk about a few Christians today, a few followers of God today, where bad things happen. And we're going to address the elephant today. We're going to ask the question, why suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is it that Jesus would say that in this world we should expect trouble? Why would he say that? Hang on a second, we're the redeemed of the Lord. (laughs) These things don't happen to us. Surely now that we're saved, uh, Jesus is going to fix up our world. That's not what he promised at all. Jesus never promised to fix up your world. He promised to deliver you out of this world. That was the promise of the gospel. But let's ask the question this morning. But before we ask that question, and we're going to categorically answer that today, but before we do, let's unpack what we're talking about. There was a man 
that lived, if you've met me in Job chapter 1. We're just going to gently walk our way through the first couple of chapters. Now, I could preach for six months on the first two chapters of Job. Here's a word for November. The profundity, I've been reading the dictionary, yeah. The profundity that is in the first two chapters of Job is enormous. The theology that is packed and crammed into two chapters of Job is enormous. But we're just going to touch on a few things this morning. Let's have a look at Job. There was a man in the land of Uz. Not us, Uz. Oz? There was a man in the land of Oz (laughs) whose name was Job. And that man was a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. What we don't see listed here, there's no list of any sin. No list of anything that Job did abhorrently wrong. But if if you think those words blameless and upright mean that he was sinless, that's not what it means. The word blameless, particularly in the Hebrew, points to more of a purity of motivation and desire. It's, it, it speaks more about the motives of the heart, particularly when we're talking about reverence and fear of God. So uh, it goes on to explain a little bit about Job. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. <laughs> Again, why would you have more than a couple, right? Verse 3, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys. Again, who cares? Well, he would have done because it says here that he was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, if you are reading your Bible chronologically, that is in the sequence of time when it was written, Job is the first book ever written. Genesis speaks about beginnings, but it wasn't the first book ever written. Job is the first book that was written, historically speaking. Job was a man that lived in the time of the patriarchs when what he has listed here would rank him as very, very wealthy. Job, from a physical standpoint, had it all. We're going to learn something about Job. Uh, There's a problem with having everything. When you have everything, sometimes you have everything to lose. It goes on and lists everything and it says that Uh, Job was such an upright man uh, that his seven sons and three daughters, sometimes they'd have a party and just in case they did the wrong thing, it says, paraphrasing, that he would offer sacrifices for them just in case. Now here's where some really enormous theology comes. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, uh, answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? I love verse 10. Have you not put a hedge around him? Wow. Now, I need to press the pause button for a moment. If if you grew up or were taught that at the fall, God lost control, if you were taught that at the fall, uh, everything was handed over to the enemy and he has all the power and all the control, that's not right. We're going to unpack that a little bit more in a moment as we work through this, but that's not correct. The only thing that God lost at the fall was you. And the moment that happened, 
He did everything in his power to get you back. We are the ones that lost out at the fall, by the way. Sin has a habit of doing that. Have you considered my servant Job? You've put a hedge around him. I can't get to him. What do you expect me to do? I can't do anything to him. You've got this hedge around him. If you are in Christ, you also have a hedge around you. Thank God for that. Just keep reading though. Job's got a hedge around him. Job's doing everything right. Job's full of faith. Then why would things that are bad happen to him? We're going to unpack that in a moment. But And his house and all that he has on every side, you're protecting everything. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Uh, the enemy goes on and says, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Now, some people hold the notion that this is just a big gamble between God and the enemy. That's not what's going on here. And we will come back to uh, what is actually happening here with Job. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. Can we please notice who sets the boundaries here? He's the one in control. Next week, we are going to continue our series on Romans, and we're going to step into Romans chapter 9, and there are three passages of Scripture that are hotly contested today. It's the book of Revelation, it's Genesis chapter 1, and it's Romans chapter 9. The reason Romans chapter 9 is so hotly contested is because of the debate that rages between, uh, without trying to use too many labels, Calvinists and Arminiists. And today I want to talk about this subject because it's a great segue into what we're going to talk about next week because God is sovereign. He is the one that is in control. He has not stepped off his throne. Coronavirus did not surprise God. God is still in control. Coronavirus will do only what God allows it to do. What we are seeing here is that there is a hedge of protection around us. There are only two ways. There are only two ways that the enemy gets any access into your life. First one is God lowers the hedge and gives permission. Hold that thought for a moment. The second one is we step outside of the hedge. There's there's an enormous danger that coronavirus has posed, and that is for those, uh, as soon as, as soon as restrictions allow, you've got to get back into fellowship. You want to know why? Because while you're outside, fellowship's enormously important. Because when you're outside of community and you're outside of fellowship, you are open pickings for the enemy. Our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. What do lions look for? They look for the one that's fallen off behind the pack. So God says, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to summarise what happens next, but verse 13 says, Now there was a day. Anybody here ever had a bad day? I reckon we've all had a few bad days, right? Have a listen to Job's day. It starts like this. (laughs) Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and there came a messenger Mm. to Job and said, the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them. But it 
As the chapter goes on, we read that there came a messenger and then there came another and then there came another and then there came another. You ever had a day like that? Ever had a day where you thought these things only came in threes, but the first three was just the beginning? You ever found yourself crying out to God going, what on earth have I possibly done to deserve all of this? Great question. There were 12 men that asked Jesus that same question. You ever had a day where everything's gone wrong? You ever had moments in your life where you thought you were doing the right thing and then everything goes wrong and now you're wondering whether you were doing the right thing in the first place? You ever pursued a relationship and got married and thought, you know, six years, seven years down the track, thought this can't possibly... If you're married, then it was the right choice to begin with, but you ever taken a job offer? You ever moved places, you've ever done all of those things and then everything seems to have gone wrong. You've had one of those days and now you're questioning, God, what is going on here? I reckon if we went around and surveyed everybody in this room, I'm pretty confident that most of us have had days like this. And if you had a look at what happened to Job, everything appears naturalistic. These messengers just appear like natural events that have fallen upon him. Uh, uh, But what it teaches is this, behind the natural, there is often the supernatural. But, I love verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head. Ladies, you don't have to do that last part. Tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and he did something enormously profound. He worshipped. What? Job's just lost everything, by the way. If we want to put this in context, let's not belittle what's happened to Job here. Job's lost all of his possessions. Job's just lost all of his children, tragically. He gets on the ground and he worships and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. He got on the ground and worshipped. Interesting terminology. Uh, No recollection of him singing here. When we have a look at what worship really looks like, uh, Chris Tomlin's not there. The fat lady hasn't even warmed up the larynx yet. And so what we find here is worship must mean more than singing five songs on a Sunday. What we begin to realise, like we did with Abraham, is that worship is actually a posture of life. And I want to tell you the truth, that if you're not a worshipper before you have a day like this, days like this will not turn you into a worshipper. You can't respond like this unless you're living a life of worship. Let's bring it into today's context. Today's context, uh, uh, let alone losing our children and everything we have, we lose that promotion we thought God was going to give us. The next thing you know, our world's falling apart. We drop our bundle. We have an emotional week and I can't go on anymore. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says beautifully that faith is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond. What does Job do? Job says, God, I worship you. Why? Because... A beautiful, profound statement here of what worship looks like. Worship looks like uh, all of my circumstances have drastically changed, but God, you never change. And my circumstances don't change you, God. 
I may have lost my job. Uh, I may be having relational difficulties. Uh, I may have moved across the country for a job and got here and didn't have it. Uh, A relationship I banked everything on may have fallen apart. But at the end of the day, God, you haven't changed. I'm still going to worship you the same. Wow. That's what faith looks like. Faith doesn't look like you're able to get that new car when you want it or that new house. That's not faith. Faith looks like, God, no matter what happens in my life, I'm sticking with you. Wow, that's worship. We're going to come back to Job. But before we leave Job, let's finish off chapter 2. It goes a little bit further. The whole scenario repeats itself. And uh, again, God challenges the enemy and says, well, what about Job? And Job says, yeah, well, okay, but a man will give anything for his own skin. <laughs> uh, let me attack him personally, his, his body, and you'll see. And God says you can touch his flesh, but you can't take his life. Who's setting the boundaries? And for those that have read the book of Job, I would encourage you to read the book of Job. Whenever you have a bad day, <laughs> before you ring the pastor, just pick up the book of Job. We'll have a chat when you get here. Tuesday mornings, first thing we do now. Ladies, let's read. No, I'm joking, of course. (laughs) Verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Mm. Then his wife said to him, Now, I'm going to read a couple of verses now, and I want you to know I never, I never wrote these words, and I'm not going to change one of them. Do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God and die? Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women. Again, I didn't write this. Would speak. Shall we, ah, oh, wow, what a sentence this is. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Yeah, that's not a real popular message in churches. In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. I'm going I'm to briefly paraphrase what happens between there and about chapter 42. We're going to come back to 42 in a moment. But from that point on, if you read the book of Job, what you will read is a roller coaster of emotions. In fact, what you will read is a man going through the throngs of what we would call prayer. He's really honest with God. In one respect, he tells God, you know what? I despise the day I was born. And then the next time he says in chapter 13, he says things like, though God slay me, yet will I praise him. Wow. He goes on later on, first book ever written, and he says, my redeemer lives. Wow. But we are going to see a man that had a deep confidence in his sacrifices and a deep confidence in his own actions. We are also going to see four people that come on the scene that pretend to be their friends and they have the greatest of help when they first get there because for seven days they don't say anything. But then they decide to open their mouth and that's where everything goes wrong. And the message from his four friends, three, but they bring a little tag along, uh, the three friends' message is this, you must have sinned, Job. You must have done something wrong. You must have. Job says, no. That's a good question. If you'd like to follow me to John chapter 9, 
While you're working your way there, I'll give you a little bit of context that brings us to John chapter 9. Jesus is in the temple. Uh, There is a feast, just prior to this, was the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a Jewish feast that I won't go into too much. But uh, basically, we have a packed Jerusalem at this point in time. Uh, And... Uh, of a night time, they would light these enormously great big torches. They were the bowls filled with oil and they would light them every night. And uh, it would pierce the darkness and light up the whole temple precinct. And it was against that backdrop that Jesus would point to those and say, I'm the light of the world. In a world that is full of utter darkness, I'm like one of them torches. Wow. He then has an argument so to speak, with the Pharisees. And as he's leaving the temple, we'll pick it up in John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And I love this. You know, you could be in the thick of a million people. Uh, I want everybody in this room to know, whatever you're going through this morning, Jesus sees you. The psalmist tells us that he holds every tear in a bottle. He sees your pain. He sees your tears. He sees the night you cry yourself to sleep. He understands the hurt and the loneliness that some people go through. And you might be one of seven odd billion people on the planet right now, but God sees you. Verse 2, and his disciples asked him, here's the question. What a question this is. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Wow. His disciples decided, you know what, we're going we're gonna to stop ignoring the elephant and we're going to have a chat to him. Uh, who sinned? And the reason they would ask a question like that is this. Uh, the rabbis or the religious leaders and teachers of the day held that all affliction of any kind was directly related to a sinful act. Now, this is a message for another day, but if you hold to... Um, you're paying for the sins of your grandfather's grandfather, grandfather, that's not applicable today. And there's a context that was an Old Testament context. It's not applicable today. It's generational. You will stand before God because of your actions, not the actions of your parents, your brother, your mother, your sister, whoever. So it's, you're responsible. But this is a good question because if this man is born blind, he's had no chance to sin, then obviously, this is a really freeing thing here for some people this morning, obviously it must be because of his parents. Well, it's not because of his parents either. The rabbis had taken it to such a ridiculous level that they had contentious arguments about the fact that you could sin while you're in the womb. You must be able to. That's why people are born with defects, because you can sin while you're in the womb. It's illogical. Doesn't make sense. And if your theology doesn't make sense, there's a good chance that it's not theological. So this is a great question, and I love how Jesus answers this. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned. Or his parents. Mm, this is not generational. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I love what Jesus does here. Jesus flips the whole scenario from cause. He flips the discussion from cause to purpose. 
What Jesus wants the disciples to know and what Jesus wants every one of us to know is the, the question about why suffering, the answer to why suffering, it doesn't lie in cause. It lies in purpose. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you probably four examples of that in a moment of what that looks like because our, our doctrine, our interpretation and our theology must fit with the complete picture of Scripture. So let's, let's have a look at a few examples. Who knows the scripture in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Oh, that's a great verse. Everybody's got that on their wall and on their fridge, haven't they? Great verse. Let me give you a little bit of context. Um, That verse was a prophecy to Israel to restore them after exile. Let me describe what exile looked like. Exile looked like that Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, would romp on into Jerusalem, destroy the city... Destroy the temple, thousands would be killed, and those that were left would be taken to exile to Babylon. They would serve the Babylonian interests while they were there, and they would have no temple, and so forth. Turns out, although that's a horrible scenario, turns out it was actually the best thing for Israel. Because Israel in exile, they learnt to worship God no matter what their circumstances told them. Even though we're in Babylon, we're going to worship God. Uh, It was whilst they were in Babylon, they they learned to meet in small groups. There's something important. They learned to meet in small groups by the river. Ever heard the song by Boney M, By the Rivers of Babylon? Yeah, that's a psalm, and it's speaking of the time of exile when they used to meet by the rivers of Babylon and uphold the law. Wow. And by the time they return, they still have things called Sanhedrins and they still have things called synagogues where they met locally. It was a great time for Israel and there was great purpose and God did restore them and they learnt an enormous amount while they were in exile. That's one example. Let me give you the example of four guys that went into exile. Uh, Four guys by the name of Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Uh, it's Abednego, not Abednego. That's a place in Victoria. Of course, I'm talking about Daniel and his three friends, but I want to talk about his three friends. In chapter 3 of Daniel, we read about his three friends, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in all of his pride, erects a golden statue. And he says, when I blow this trumpet that sounds like an elongated blow-off, uh, when I blow this trumpet, everybody's going to bow down and they're going to worship me. And these three guys say, no, we're not going to do that. And when they get caught out, they get brought before the king and the king says, listen, we're going to blow those trumpets and when it blows, you're going to bow down or we're going to put you in the fiery furnace. And just to make sure that we do the job properly, we're going to crank the furnace up to about three times the temperature, about Queensland in the summertime. And for those that know the story, you will know that those three men stood up against Nebuchadnezzar and said, you know what? Our God is able, and he was. How many people agree that God was able to keep them out of the furnace? Absolutely. God had all the power to keep them out of the furnace. My God is able to rescue me from the fiery furnace. Here's three of the most profound words in that chapter. But if not. But if not. Know this, we will not bow down to you. Nebuchadnezzar. 
throws them into the fiery furnace. These guys, full of faith, what a confession, hey? They get thrown into the... Interesting thing, uh, Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and instead of three, there was four. Or in Tasmanian terms, instead of three, there was four. It's very Irish, you're right. (laughs) And one like the Son of God. And God never promised to remove all the fiery furnaces in our lives, but he has promised to be in there with us. Uh, What he said to 12 disciples was this, let us go to the other side of the lake, and then he got into the boat with them, and a storm blew up against the boat. Uh, Nothing had changed. They were still going to the other side of the lake. Yes, the storms will blow, but it's all about who you got in your boat. Now, for those that have listened to the sermons through the COVID period, you will have heard of Joseph. All things work together for the good of those who love God and accord according to his purpose. So there's, there's a few examples to begin with, but I want to give you the most extreme example right now. The most innocent man that ever walked the earth was a man called Jesus of Nazareth. And he suffered the most intense suffering that you could imagine. And when we look, when we ask the question, why suffering? There's an enormous part of God that says, you know what? I went first. Before I asked you to lay down your life, I laid mine down. And through all of that intense suffering, There's the greatest purpose. And the purpose of that suffering was everybody in this room. Uh, Hebrews 12 puts it like this. That for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising its shame. You are the joy set before Christ. Uh, I remember when I was in the forestry. Um, We used to plant, we used to fertilise, and we used to prune. And uh, we used to get all the lovely blocks at the bottom of a mountain called the Blue Tear. And when we were pruning, you'd get into, you'd step off the track and it was so thick with scrub that the sun hardly even pierced in through the bottom of the scrub. Causes a few problems when guys are supposed to be walking in straight lines and they can't see where they're going and they're all over the place. They're cutting guys off, they're getting lost. Everything's all over the place. The only way I could fix it was to run ahead of them with a four and a half metre ladder and stand up on top of the ladder and stand above the canopy and then guide these guys straight. And the question we should be asking when it comes to those times in our lives, when those circumstances seem like they're going to overwhelm us, is is not what caused this, but God, what is your purpose in all of this? Because when we seek purpose, it gives us something that Jesus had. It's called perspective. You see, Jesus was able to look beyond and above all of the suffering and see the enormous purpose. And when we seek the purpose in what God is doing, it's like we're above all. We can get lost down on the ground in all that's going on. You you ever had moments in your life where it just seems like everything's like a thick pea soup fog and you think the sun will never shine again? But having God's eyes on the situation allows you to have perspective and you can see the purpose. Jesus was like he was on top of that ladder. And all we can see is the intense suffering, but he can see the purpose. 
about our little friend Job? What's going on with Job? The key was given to us when the enemy said, lower the hedge and touch what he has and he will certainly curse you. The challenge that was coming to Job was challenging what was his everything. By the time we get to chapter 42, what has happened is God has spoken to Job. Chapters 38, 39 and 40, God answers Job. And God asks Job 69 questions of which we can scientifically answer 19 of those today. Questions like, where were you when I created the earth? Where, were, where do I hide the darkness? Scientists are just realising when we look into space and we see the blackness in space, that's not empty space, it's, it's dark matter and it's being stretched like a canopy. It's amazing, these things. Job says in chapter 42, after God has spoken, and when God asks us a question, he's not looking for information. 42 verse 1, Job said, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard, this is a very profound verse, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What's Job saying? You know, up until, up until all this had happened, God, I had a head knowledge of you, but now I've got a heart experiential knowledge of you. You see, the penny dropped for Job. And Job's everything got shifted. Same thing happens to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. He finally gets Isaac, the promised one. And then God says, walk up a mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. I've said to my boys, if we're ever walking up a mountain and I've got a lump of wood under my... I've spent too long in Genesis. We all know that Isaac didn't suffer anything, but we do know that God tested Abraham's everything. Are you, does Isaac have a bigger place in your heart, Abraham? Does everything that you have have a bigger place in your heart, Job? And I want to ask you, everybody a question in this room this morning. What is your everything? We, I want to, when it comes to blessing... If I was to say, what could, if God was to bless you right now, what would that look like? What's the, what's the number one thing on your blessing list? And considering the fact that we're all going to stand before Jesus and given the account of the life we've lived, the greatest blessing that God could give anybody in this room is whatever makes you more like a Jesus. And... How many of us, when we look back over our lives, would say that it is in the darkest moments of my life I felt the closest to God? How many of us could look back at those circumstances that seemed like they would overwhelm us and we clung on to God 
because we had nothing else to cling on to. And now that we look back, our life is radically different. God desires to challenge what is our everything. In everything that comes against us, there is purpose. When you can find the purpose, is there purpose even in coronavirus? (laughs) When you look at an event like coronavirus, there are hundreds of thousands of people across the globe that have been infected, depending on what numbers you want to believe. There have been hundreds of thousands that have perished. But I remember when coronavirus first hit, and I was praying. I said, God, don't shut the churches. Selfish, isn't it, really? You know, shut the cafes, shut the... but don't, don't shut churches. And then the announcements came. And I found myself not praying necessarily take all of this away, but praying, Lord, what is your purpose in all of this? And over the months, I have dramatically seen that One thing coronavirus is doing, particularly on the landscape of church, is God is rubbing out the grey. God is removing... For so long, so many of us, we we hold on to the world firmly with one hand and we hold on to God firmly with the other hand and we think that we can have the best of both worlds. And what coronavirus is doing is sifting. And it's removing the grey. And sometimes... I mean, who knows that having church shut down for six months is inconvenient, right? And there's a lot more pain to come. There's a lot more economical pain to come. But I believe that all things work together for the good of those who are called. When Jesus was talking to Peter, Jesus said to Peter, he said, the enemy has asked to sift you as wheat. Jesus says, I have prayed. And how many of us wanted Jesus to pray? I have prayed that God would remove you from that sifting, that God would keep that sifting away from you, that God would protect you. That's not what Jesus prayed. Jesus says, I have prayed that your faith may not fail. Jesus said, you're going to be sifted. It's going to be uncomfortable. I've prayed that God would keep you. As I finish this morning, I want to ask you three questions. First one is this. When the storms of life hit your boat, what's your first reaction? Something I've learned about the exam room of God. I don't know if anyone else has been in the exam room of God. Something I've learned about the exam room of God is you will stay in that room until you pass. You know those people that are like sandpaper in your life and you pray for God just to get them out of your life? And finally they leave. (laughs) And two minutes later, somebody exactly the same walks in. (laughs) Mm. I noticed nobody looked to their left or to their right when I said that. (laughs) Eyes front. How has and how can God be glorified in the storms of your life? When, let's just take the example of Daniel and his three mates. Uh, 
Nebuchadnezzar is the only, only pagan king recorded that was converted. He ends up singing the praises of God. Seven years eating grass like an ox, but hey, you know what, whatever works for you. So in all of the affliction that happened to those four guys, how was God glorified? God miraculously and supernaturally intervened in the affairs of a very pagan and wicked nation called Babylon. What do you think he could do to Brisbane? When you go through the storms of life, I guarantee you one thing, everybody's watching you. Where do you find your hope? Where do you get your perspective? And I challenge everybody here, last of all, to find purpose because looking outside of your circumstances and allowing yourself to see things with God's perspective will change everything that's happening to you and around you. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, Pastor, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's (laughs) hunky-dory. Put on your seatbelt. I make you a guarantee. These days will come. Jesus gave us the same guarantee. In this world, you will know trouble. The question isn't if those days come, but when those days come, how will you respond? What will worship look like for you on that day? Let's pray. Father, You have not stepped off the throne. Just pray for people here this morning. I know there's people in the room this morning that are hurting. There's people in the room that have lost loved ones. There's people in the room that are going through relational difficulties. There's people in the room that have suffered on the job front. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your purpose. Lord, get our eyes off the cause and get our eyes on your purpose, I pray. And Lord, just as you did with that blind man in John chapter 9, I pray that you would glorify yourself in all the circumstances that come against us. I thank you, Father, that in all the furnaces of life, when we look to the left and to the right, there you are. (laughs) Right there with us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.